Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, I'm stand-up comedian James Mullinger and the co-founder of Edits Magazine. This is Mullinger Meets Canadians, the podcast where we meet Canadians who are making waves on the world stage. This week's very special guest has released the funniest book of the year and it's titled Talking to Canadians, which is very apt because today is actually my very first full day as a Canadian. Yes, that's right. Yesterday, my dream came true and I finally became a Canadian citizen. So who better to speak to than arguably the greatest ever ambassador for all things Canadian, the legendary Rick Mercer. When Rick Mercer announced in 2018 that he would be bidding farewell to his wildly successful show, The Rick Mercer Report, at the peak of its success, it created a shockwave whose ripple effects travelled throughout Canada's small towns and big cities, rural and urban landscapes, breathtaking mountain ranges, tall grasses of the prairies, its vast shorelines, and to the millions of Rick Mercer fans that live in these places. The question on everyone's lips was the same. What's Rick Mercer going to do next? Well, it turns out the answer is write the funniest book of the year that is every bit as fascinating, nuanced, hilarious, eye-opening, thought-provoking as his much-lauded television work. Among countless other awards, the Middle Cove, Newfoundland and Labrador native has received 25 Gemini Awards and nine honorary degrees from Canadian universities. He was appointed Officer of the Order of Canada for his ability to inspire and challenge Canadians through humour. So without further ado, let's meet one of the greatest Canadians of all time, Mr Rick Mercer. Rick, thank you so much for doing this. I'm very happy to be here, thank you. Oh, well, it's a huge honour to talk with you. I was a huge, huge fan of the book, so much so that I've actually read it twice. I, I read it once. Oh, my once. goodness. I know. And there's numerous reasons for this. But um, I would just like to start by asking about, I have been Twitter stalking you. And I guess it's not stalking if it's on Twitter. But um, sure. uh, last night uh, you went out and there's a line in the book that I f- is one of my favorite lines in the book where you say I love the theater more than anything there is nothing better than being in the audience when the lights go down at that moment anything is possible and I saw that you went to the National Ballet of Canada's Angels Atlas at the Four Seasons Performing Arts Centre last night how did it feel to be back in a theater? What was exciting was when the lights did go down Hmm. there was applause instantly and then it just grew and grew and grew and then it died down. And then you just heard a single a note from a cello or something. And everyone could sense that the orchestra was about to start. And then the applause started again. We were just wow. so excited to see the top of a conductor's head. <laughs> so there was this real communal moment that all of us shared even before the curtain rose or a note had been played. It was really, it was really quite beautiful. And also, I will say that I thought it was going to be a nightmare getting in, but it was really efficient, flashing our, you know, Vax passes and our photo ID, like boarding an airplane to go to the theater, but it went super fast. And and the ballet is something that's very new to me. Uh, and uh, I just love it. I totally love it. And it was a great night at the theater. Amazing. How did your love for ballet come about? Because I, mean, I think one of the things that we all agree on, whatever performing arts we work in especially in Canada is what we need is for people to explore things that they wouldn't normally go to and in some cases that some people think they don't like comedy until they see the right comedy show and then the same thing with opera and ballet how did that happen for you oh yeah well the ballet certainly came late and 
you know, it might be a stretch to talk about my love of the ballet because I'm, I'm fairly illiterate when it comes to ballet. I don't really know necessarily what I'm looking at or what I'm in for when I go. <laughs> I guess I was first exposed to it on the Mercer Report. I did a shoot with the National Ballet School and then took some classes and, you know, you're goofing around and stuff, but I was just so impressed with their athleticism and they're just such incredible specimens. And that was very impressive. And uh, I found the whole ballet school really moving because it was filled with kids who are in this stunning building in a major North American city studying ballet. But so many of them came from a small town where their three brothers played hockey and for some reason, just like Billy Elliot, this kid wants to do ballet and all the things that are inherent with being in the ballet. And then suddenly it's like they're picked up and whisked off to Hogwarts. Like they're whisked <laughs> off to this place where ballet is king and, and you're there in a major city. I was just so, it was very, very moving to shoot at the school. And uh, I guess that's, I started going. I started just going and uh, checking it out. My partner and I, we both really love it. But what you said is so true about people who say, oh, I don't like this, I don't like that. It's like musicals. Mm. How many people I know, they're like, oh, I hate musicals. <laughs> and I say, and yet you've never been to one, have you? And they go, well, <laughs> I'm like, well, have you? And they're like, well, no, but Greece was stupid. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah, and it's true. People do tend to judge an entire genre based on seeing one thing. I mean, we're yeah. certainly with comedy. So they'll have one bad experience at one open mic night or comedian they found offensive, and that's it. They write that thing off for life. Sure. And um, open mic nights are all about bad experiences. <laughs> for everyone. <laughs> There's, going to be. There's going to be, because it's it's like... There's a lot of people, it's their first time doing it. I mean, you wouldn't right. go to a restaurant like that. This guy has <laughs> never made an omelette. Never. <laughs> never even tried. Just decided today. Doesn't even know what an omelette is, and yet he'll be making your breakfast. So. But you might, you might lock in. That's so true. I mean, I mean, how wonderful that you were discovering a love for different things while filming the Mercer Report, while, of course, as viewers, we were all discovering things, not just about the rest of Canada, but indeed our own communities. I mean, I, I live in New Brunswick and I did, had no idea that some of the world's best Acadian sturgeon was being made minutes away from me. Sure. Until you went there. Um, I know. <laughs> it was an incredible gift to do that for so many years. And everywhere I went, I talk about this in the book, I was such a poor student and I regret that. And I wish I had figured out how to be a good student, but I've always wondered in the back of my mind, my God, what would have happened if it didn't work out? I would have been like, what would I have done? And so all those years that I would go and go to work with people, I always thought maybe this is something I could have done. And I would always walk away thinking, no, there but for the grace of God go I, that I have to do that for a living. And not because I'm better than them, certainly, but most people, what they do is so hard. It's so difficult. They need such gifts. And uh, and I just couldn't see myself doing anything, any of those things, mainly because I don't have the skills or the work <laughs> ethic, I think. But uh, it was always great to discover things like, yes, the world-class caviar, which, by the way, is a great deal. And you can order from Costco. And ever since I've done that, I do that every Christmas. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, I, order, I order a little tin for my friends that always have us over to dinner. And that's like the treat. And uh, it's super popular. Yeah. Oh, my God. That makes me so happy because for the rest of us watching it, we were learning about these things. But I love that you were learning about them. Oh, like for sure. Yeah. Always was. But I always gave it my all. Mm. And I always had you know, some research done when I went in. I wouldn't go in completely cold. But nine times out of 10, I would never know about the guy who's growing sturgeon and <laughs> producing caviar and sturgeon meat and all this in New Brunswick. That was the team of people I had around me. Right. I mean, is that something that you had to kind of learn going from, I mean, and of course, everything you've always done has been infused with a positivity and a warmth. It's never been mean-spirited comedy. But when you are talking to politicians, you can be slightly less diplomatic, so to speak, or slightly less kind than you were when you were out meeting entrepreneurs and business people in small towns and communities. Like, how did you get that balance between it being extremely funny but never laughing at people and it always feeling it was inclusive? 
It was a conscientious decision. Obviously, my act changed as I got older. When I started, I was a very young man, a very angry young man, I should say. When I started, I was a young man. No, when I started, <laughs> I was an angry young man. So much so, my first one-man show was called, subtitled, Charles Lynch Must Die. I mean, if someone suggested such a thing to me today, I'd be like, that is outrageous. You can't call your show that. So I was a very angry young man. But as time goes on, you change. And with the Mercer Report, we chose a lane. We intentionally decided we were going to celebrate. Right. And that doesn't come natural to people in the comedy world. Mm -hmm. When you're in grade six or seven, you don't get laughs by celebrating the teacher. <laughs> you get laughs by destroying the teacher. And if you can take down the principal, you go further up the food chain, the higher up you go, the funnier it gets. No one ever sits around and goes, let's celebrate the school. No. Mm -hmm. So as an adult comedian, we just chose that lane and it was a pretty wide open lane. Right. And I tell you, people who wrote with me over the years, it was always a learning curve. Hmm. It was always a learning curve because we'd be going to some small town and doing something. And, and if there was ever anything that did anything other than celebrate, we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't do the joke. We wouldn't do the gag. Hmm. And I was loathed more than anything because of where I grew up that I was very aware of the fact that we had a national TV show and it the TV show was based out of Toronto mm. and we were going to avoid the perception that Toronto was the center of the universe and the coolest place to be. I mean, I had enough of that growing up watching, mm. you know, all, all the groovy TV from Queen West and stuff. And it was like, oh, there's nowhere else in Canada other than <laughs> Queen West and our cool clothes. I, I loathed that. So mm. I, I was very careful to avoid that at all costs. And you definitely did so much for all of the Atlantic provinces in doing so, because, I mean, it still infuses everything from uh, media, national newspapers and national magazines call themselves national, but don't have any correspondence based anywhere east of Quebec. And yet sure. suddenly the show gave equal precedence to, again, I mean, one, another one of my favorite episodes was the Ganon Factory episode, which, again, was yeah. just this beautiful, absolutely hilarious, but completely respectful and embracing at the same time. And I mean, I've watched that 20 or 30 times and it's hard to kind of gauge how that balance was so perfectly pitched. But you guys did it. But I guess it's because you actually do feel that enthusiasm and love. None of it was faked. I don't think it was. You know, there's a campaign on now that Mike, you know, Mike Holmes and Mike Holmes Jr. is yeah. they're involved in. And there Mike Holmes was on the show. But Mike is a famous uh, a contractor TV personality, you know, make it right with Mike <laughs> Holmes and his son is equally talented and they're TV guys. And uh, they're running this campaign now, fighting the stigma of people going into the trades, right. electrician, plumbers, mm -hmm. contractors, mm -hmm. carpentry and all that business. And when I first saw it, I thought, what? This, that can't be right. What is this exactly about? And I was, I was like, I don't, I don't get it. Because I honestly, my natural reaction is, well, what kind of asshole would have a problem with anyone going into the trades? Like that would never even cross my mind. Right. So if I was out shooting with people who are tradespeople, it would never cross my mind to make fun of what it is they did or look down my nose at it because I sit at a keyboard and type with my little pretty hands all day. <laughs> it just wouldn't cross my mind. And I guess I went into every situation like that. Uh, wanting to learn about them. And I have a genuine interest in that. I'm literally the guy that when I'm sitting on a plane, if the seat next to me is empty, I think, oh, I hope someone takes that seat and I hope they're chatty. Nice. I like <laughs> yeah. that. So it all kind of stemmed from a, a natural and real curiosity, essentially. Yeah, I guess so. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the few skills I have being able to talk to people, I think. And uh, it is one of my favorite things to do. I really do enjoy it. And I never had to fake it. Hmm. And again, it looked like a one person show, but there was a real team of people around me and they were really good also yeah. at finding great stories and interesting people. And it, nothing made me feel better than when we put someone on television and they probably never been on television before. They might never ever be on television again they're harvesting oysters in Prince Edward Island and people coming up to me saying that oyster guy was great. He's fantastic. Yeah. It's like, yeah, he is. That yeah. We be. turned him into a rock star for five minutes and he, <laughs> and he came out looking great. Nothing made me feel better than that. That's beautiful. 
And I mean, just going back to being in the theatre and feeling that sound and that collective experience that everyone had and just you describing it gave me goosebumps and almost kind of what you described reminds me of like going to my first concert at nine and hearing the first, you know, drums of a guitar and going, wow, this is a feeling I want to have again and again. Do you think that after the last 18 months that we're all going to have a far better and bigger appreciation of those live experience moments now and of performing arts in general? Yeah, I think so. At least for a while. Right. It was really interesting last night how people were applauding. They were applauding so much. They were not just applauding the ballet that was about to happen. They were applauding that we were all in the room together. They were applauding <laughs> frontline workers. They were applauding whoever invented the friggin' vaccine. They were applauding all of those things. Yeah. Just were like, oh my God, this is really <laughs> happening. And then we heard a, like, a note on the cello and it was like, oh, it was kind of overwhelming. We could have left then and said, well, that was a great night. That was really, really good. And it turned out the ballet was brilliant, by the way. So it was really a spectacular night. But I think people will have a real, you know, a new appreciation. It's going to take a while till we get back. Uh, you know, there's situations where I don't really feel comfortable in. Going to the ballet is one thing. I don't know about going to a music hall and seeing a band. I don't know about being in a room where comedy is being done yet. I mean, I, I know I will, but, you know, we all have to get back and we have to get through this. Yeah. But I really miss it. I felt yeah. the other day, a kid who lives next door, we were chatting and someone was talking about movies and he just turned seven and I heard him say to his mother, he said, but I, I haven't been to a movie, have I? She was like, of course you've been to a movie. But then I thought, right, that's so far away in his mind. Yeah, That was a yeah. long time ago. And he was wondering, have I ever been to a movie? <laughs> like, wow, what a strange time we're we're living in. Yeah. And I mean for you. Let alone that... the theater. I'm sure those kids have been to the theater too, but not for 18 months at least yeah. or two years. And that's a lifetime when you're that age. Yeah, yeah. It's historical memory for them now, which um yeah. which means they get to experience it again. I mean Sure, it, sure. It, it must have been strange for you being back in that environment, having obviously spent the last 18 months, you know, A, immersed in a reflective mood. And I know you've said before that you're not a kind of a, a naturally reflective person, but of course have been while writing. And when you were looking back on Show Me the Button and what that felt like being 21, performing a show, A, to what began as a, as, as a full house anyway, but then grew to this huge thing. When my first one-man show happened and it was a hit, hmm. There was no greater feeling in the world, although part of why it was a hit and I was able to do it is you don't know any better. And I don't know if at the time I realized how rare that is. I talk about in the book how I, I ended up having a national tour. Yeah. And I thought that's just the way it happens. <laughs> People like my show. I'm running for 14 nights in a 90C theater in Ottawa. And next thing you know, Gerald has gone out and sold it to theaters right across the country. Well, that's what happens because the show is funny, I guess. Well, no, that was the luckiest break that I ever could have had. And the only reason that I ended up with a national tour and the show became as big as it was is because another show that opened in another part of the country was technically complicated and it died in the first week. And that happens all the time in the theater. But that show had the backing of major theater companies right across the country that had a huge gaping hole in their season. And I just waltzed right into it. I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's what happens. Now I'm going to play uh, six weeks in Toronto and I'm going out and doing uh, six weeks in uh, Vancouver with a built-in hold. So it's, it's all going well. Like, this I is how the you. industry works. This is how it works. <laughs> you just gotta, you just gotta go out there and work hard, kids. Anything is possible. I mean it's such an incredible story and of course I mean you talk about it in detail in the book and again I mean so much of it obviously it's a great show and obviously it was a it was you know brilliantly written and brilliantly performed but you talk a lot about the kind of lack of a star system in Canada and the reasons why that is and I found that segment so fascinating and of course as we know, I mean, someone can be doing something amazing, but unless people know they're doing it, then they can't buy a ticket for it. Why aren't there more Geralds in Canada to get what people do out there? <laughs> well, I talk about this in the book. Gerald insisted, because he was acting, he was the producer and the director, but he was also acting as my management, I guess, and he always has continued to be artist management. He insisted that my name be above the title right. for the show. Not only is that unheard of in Canada because it's so gauche, but there was an actual policy at the National Arts Center that nobody's name 
Right. You know, Christ himself could come in here and we're not putting his name above the title. <laughs> That's just not done. So we put my name in the title and therefore they couldn't get away with it because they'd hired me to write a play. I could name the play whatever I want. So we Jeez. named it Rick Mercer's Show Me the Button, I'll Push It. Charles Lynch Must Die. And Gerald insisted always that my name be above the title. And I don't think my ego was strong enough that I ever would have gone into a room and insisted that. Like he totally was responsible for that and it helped build the brand. And I talk about this in the book. Well, you go to the ballet, I tell you, their names are on the posters, the prima ballerina, the prima ballet guy, whatever he's called, their names are on the posters. They have a star system inside of that world. But if you go to the Shaw Theater Festival or you pick up the Globe and Mail and see the ads for the Shaw Theater Festival, there's no actor's names on those posters. I find it infuriating. You're supposed to go because you want to see a streetcar named Desire. Well, who's playing Blanche? Oh, don't worry about that. <laughs> who's going to take his shirt off? Oh, don't you worry. <laughs> why? Only in Canada. Right. And uh, why? infuriating to me. I don't know why. I mean, it's been happening for so long. And and again, once I mean, upon I'm... a time, once upon a time at the CBC, there was a concerted among bureaucrats and the CBC is, you know, great and I can defend them forever. But there was a time where among some certain confused bureaucrats, there was a radio personality, perhaps he was before your time, I don't know, but his name was Peter Zosky. Oh, yes, yes. And he owned morning radio on the CBC. And at a time when owning it meant he owned it in every market in the country. And the show was called Morningside, but everyone called it Zosky right. because that's his name. <laughs> and there were certain people when Peter retired, were like, well, we can't have that again. Like we can't go putting people's names in things because otherwise they just, next thing you know, they're, they're, they're stars. <laughs> then they had demands. And then, they, you know, it was, uh, but I never ran into that at the CBC. They were happy to have my name in the title, but I, I don't know. The lack of star system is, is kind of infuriating. And not because I think, oh, I want to be a star. It's because that's how, people make a living right that's how right. you know you go see the show at shaw and you go wow she was great yeah. and then the next season you look to see if she is in the show right. you know her name yeah <laughs> you know it's, it's, oh it's not, i like that person. yeah it's not an ego thing it's the same way the plumber has their name on their van it's because who do you call when they've done a good job yeah i know a guy he's good yeah you, you want the you person just <laughs> you just don't go just call anyone. <laughs> yeah. I know. It um, is, yeah, it's it's a weird idiosyncrasy of Canadian show business. And it's fascinating because uh, because Canadians are traditionally, and especially Canadian artists, there's a modesty there that means that often they won't ask for it in the same way someone, uh, British performers and American performers might scream about wanting to. That's kind of what sure. I meant about everyone needing a Gerald to be able to stand there and say, we need this person to be recognized for this. And it's strange because I was reading that this was happening back then. I would have thought it would have changed by now because surely we don't want people running off to other countries to become successful. Why can't we give them the success here in Canada? Yeah, It's funny that you say more Gerald. When we brought the show back to St. John's, well, for starters, we opened, and it was at the National Arts Centre of Canada. Right. Massive. And, yeah, except it was in a garage. It was literally <laughs> in a garage that they had decided they would let experimental stuff happen in. But people in Newfoundland didn't know that. So Gerald went with it, and he took out an ad in the paper in Newfoundland that said, the National Arts Centre of Canada salutes Rick Mercer. And then a picture of the big, huge, imposing National Arts Centre, and uh, then these quotes, half of whom, he made half of which he made up, you know, the greatest <laughs> show ever, KLTZ in Ottawa. And uh, we came back and we were, he was in sell, sell, sell mode. And the theater, which I owe everything to, the Resource Center for the Arts, was founded by theater artists and run by theater artists. And we booked the thing and he booked it for three weeks. No one ran three. And we had two with a built-in holdover. And they were like, what is this holdover? And he's like, don't tell anyone, but we're ready to go. And then when we were approaching opening night, I'll never forget, he was trying to arrange Klieg lights for outside of the theater. And for people who don't know, that's like the old classic Hollywood thing, that the spotlights outside that, you know, cross one another and swish forward and you light up the sky. 
And they were horrified. They were like, and because he was from mainland Canada, they were like, we don't do that here. <laughs> and he was like, what, sell out? What are you talking about? You don't do that here. And to this day, anytime we ever talk about going back to do a show at the hall, he's, he always says, I'm not going back unless I can have big lights. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. It, yeah, it, I, it, I locked in. I locked in, yeah. It's, 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 it's an essential vision to have because no matter how great as I say someone's you know performances or or their pottery is or their dancing is or their opera is unless people know that they can't come oh, sure. and support it and this sure is... they need it and they need a champion and because uh he and I were in a personal relationship it was like a mom and pop business or a mm. pop and pop business <laughs> so he was invested if he was just doing artist management for 15 percent right. he wouldn't have been putting in that much work or interest because we were in the theater there was no money right. so it was a very it was a passion project of his as well and we've always looked at it as it's a pop and pop business so yeah and many people over the years have asked him to <laughs> do what he did with me with other people and he just never had any interest but uh, you know he could have taught a few people a few things and there's nothing frustrating it's hard because I know that I know a fair bit about artist management now and, you know, managing a career and stuff. And and if I see a young person who I think is just brilliant, I think, oh, I wish someone could come along and provide them with the advice and the guidance that they need to make it in this completely insane, <laughs> non-logical business. And I could do that, but that's not what I do. You know, right. yeah. I can give yeah, them some true. advice, but it's not what I do. I don't, I'm not going to go in there and figure out how to take them to the next level. But you have now done it because it is all in the book. And that is what is I love so much. About. It, it, it's that the book is, it's a memoir. It's a love story. It's a comic masterpiece. It's a manual and guide to being successful. And by successful, I mean, not necessarily being famous, but making a living in the arts. And this is why I just, I felt sure. so in love with the book that I was excited about reading it anyway, because I wanted to learn about your life, which you haven't shared publicly before, the all of the details of your life, combined with, of course, I was hoping for and got anecdotes about what it was like uh, filming all of the shows that we love. But there's so much more. And those insights into the intricacies of what it takes and how you got there and all those little, I mean, was there any temptation to not put that stuff in and keep it to yourself? Well, that's, <laughs> no, no. Although it's always a joke that I would always say to people who are colleagues of mine, and some people love to teach. I've never mm -hmm. taught anything. And they would say, oh, I'm, I'm teaching a class. And I would say, what, what are you teaching? And they would say, you know, playwriting. And I was like, why would you teach anyone how to write plays when you're the playwright? They must die so we can live. Like, what are you going to do? Give away the secrets? But that's not really the way I honestly felt. But uh, I, I'm glad if anyone can think, you know, look at it as a blueprint of maybe a few right things that they should do, then that's a good thing. Yeah, that's yeah. all right. And I always love that in showbiz memoirs, like that part of showbiz memoirs, knowing how people got into that room like how did you know Lennon and McCartney get into the studio that first time like I love that stuff I, yeah. because because you always think well down the street Lennon and McCartney were going to the studio and down the street there was you know Jonesy and Smedley and they were really good quite they were better actually but they just never never figured out a way to get in the studio <laughs> you don't know yeah, that's no, true. I mean, it's, and there's it, a lot of luck. There's so much luck. I always think the drummers are the luckiest. Not to take anything away from the drummers, but you know, <laughs> when you go like, "Well, you're the drummer in Motley Crue. You, sir, are a very lucky person <laughs> because you're a billionaire who plays the drums." <laughs> yeah. Oh, even more so if you're if you're the drummer in Coldplay, where they signed a contract in school that they would split everything 25, 25, 25, 25. Oh, did so, they do that? Yeah. So that um, again, so there would never be any egos, uh, and whoever wrote what. So then, twenty five years later. Chris Martin, one of the most famous men in the world, can't walk down the street without getting mobbed, writes all the songs, does everything, deals with all the bullshit, has the same income as the drummer who no one knows and gets to live totally anonymous while also yeah. being on stage in front of me. I, know. Every night. <laughs> I always, I always, if I'm on a holiday or something, sometimes you see, I always love this. If you, 
you see like some old wizened rocker come in and he's got his his rock wife with him and he's got uh obviously two or three of his kids who are in their 40s and then a bunch of grandchildren you're like oh buddy must be doing all right look he's got all these people on holiday and you can just tell by looking at him he didn't work in a bank and you're like who is he who is he and then someone will say that's the that's the bass player for Jethro Tall. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. I love that. I love that. Yeah, this, it's something about the kind of, it, it's the telltale signs of like the leathery skin where you know that oh, it yeah. has seen so much action, but also so much moisturizer. The combination of the <laughs> expensive moisturizer and heroin combined yeah, exactly. creates a, a unique look. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, um, and then the other thing, of course, which I think everyone was was excited to to learn was kind of you know what was going through your mind in 2018 when in in many ways you're kind of at this kind of you know this, this peak. Clearly, you're not running out of ideas. Clearly, could have kept going, but made a decision uh, to to step away at at its peak. Um, can you talk me through your kind of mindset at that point, and were there any kind of regrets kind of kind of after that? There's been no regrets. A lot of people suggested that I was going to go mad because I think you probably know there's certain comedians, although I don't consider myself a comedian in the classic sense of the word, but there's certain comedians, performers that if they're not on stage, they just don't feel right. This is why Bruce Springsteen does three and four hour shows because it's <laughs> the only time in his day that he doesn't want to sob uncontrollably. He's happy <laughs> when he's on stage. That's it. And I know a lot of people like that. So some people thought, oh, you're, you, you've been up there for a long time, but I have, don't have any regrets. I left, I wrapped it up for a couple of reasons. One, I did have this sense that it couldn't continue and be as good as I felt like we were most of the time. Mm -hmm. And I would always say, oh, we'll never run out of things to do. But I was getting worried about repeating ourselves. And uh, one element of the show, certainly not the most important, but a popular element of the show was what we called host in peril, which is when I would find myself jumping out of airplanes or doing the bobsled or whatever. And that was great fun. But I started to think that I couldn't do that quite to the same extent anymore. Right. And so that was a factor. There was a few, but I've done this before. I walked away from 22 minutes when it was the best job ever. And right. I really felt like that show could run forever. And it practically has. But I walked away from that and I pulled the plug on talking to Americans because for a couple of reasons, but one of which I thought if I do another special, if I turn this into a series or if I turn it into a series of specials, that's what I will be. I'll be that guy. Right. And uh, so time to move on, do something else. But certainly the Mercer Report was the culmination because it brought everything that I like to do all in one show. So it was perfect. What's next? I don't know. This mm -hmm. This has been interesting. Like, this has been a real learning curve writing this. Everything I wrote for a very long time was three minutes or under. That was right. my whole thing. The rants had to be 120. We didn't like sketches to go longer than three. I just cut, 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 cut. I just never worked long form at all. And so this was a big learning curve for me to write long form. And now I'm thinking, oh, I guess I could write long form. Yeah, well, that's it again. I mean, I mean, the structure and the the narrative and the way everything flows, as I say, I mean, it's such a beautiful read. And I, one of the things that I've, I loved about the, the synopsis begins by by saying, you know, what is Rick Mercer going to do next? And I thought, uh, what an amazing thing that in 2018 that you have become such a part of everyone's lives in this country that you sit, stop doing a thing. That, that people like but you stopped doing as you mentioned you've stopped doing other things before and everyone is saying what is Mercer going to do next that is an amazing thing to uh, to, to achieve <laughs> I don't know they're even asking that question I don't know if they're asking themselves that over and over again but <laughs> it's nice to know that people have a, a curiosity about what's next and it's nice to know that people think it could be something different mm. and they'd be willing to accept that because so often in show business, you do get pegged as one thing. And if you try to deviate from that, people have no interest in seeing that. They just don't, they just don't, they want you to do what it is they like you to do, which is fine. But I think I've done enough different things that uh, I could go down any, there's a lot of different options, I guess. Yeah. 
Well, that's it. And I mean, and, and you've created, I mean, you've done so many different things already. And I mean, when I posted on social media how much I loved the book, every single comment was the same. Some people are saying, I can't wait to read it. But the 80% of the comments were, I've missed him. And I just thought, how beautiful is that, that people think of you as a long lost family member? Well, that's, and- that's lovely. And I think when people talk about they miss the show, I think they miss that celebration and that window, these little tiny windows into different parts of the country. Yeah. And I think we managed to strike this balance. I love the fact that we figured out we were a family show after about a year. We didn't realize because we were just doing the show. We were in prime time. So there's lots of things you can't do. But yeah. I sensed we were doing an adult show. Right. And I can remember we were a couple of years in, I was in Regina and I made a really silly joke, hardly original. I said, you know, welcome to Regina, that town that rhymes with fun. And uh, <laughs> we got all this mail, not from people who were outraged, but people saying, oh, come on, Rick, what are you doing? My nine-year-old was watching that. He got that joke and now he's just talking about mommy's Regina all the time. <laughs> and I, my reaction was, why, why, was your, why were you watching my show with a nine-year-old? Right. We're not that kind of show. And then I realized, oh, we are because people want to imprint Canada on their kids and they're watching with their kids. And then we were also a show that we could go to any university campus in a pinch. If we needed something to shoot, we could go to any university campus and we get get out on social media and we could get 900 kids to show up and do a stunt. And that's amazing. Most of our mail came from 10 year olds, but we could get you know, 900 kids out at a college and then all the 65 year olds were watching. And there's not a lot of that going on anymore because everyone's on their own tablets. There's no such thing as appointment television. And I think we were one of the last people who had that. Mm. And it comes back to that thing of embracing things while at no point was anyone being laughed at. It was always the embracing aspect. And one of the things that I think, you know, for a family to be able to sit down and uh, to have, you know, grandma laughing and parents laughing and kids to not only be laughing, but also learning about things that might be in their community, but it might be on the other side of the country, but it's still infused with a kind of, uh, they're inspiring stories. You have to think about the questions you're going to ask, but you don't have to overthink them. One of the things that we discovered on the show as great television were profiles of Paralympians and for the most part Paralympians being you know people who are missing arms and legs or quadriplegics or paraplegics and I can't remember the circumstances that we had some Paralympians on the show and it was just such good TV and there was nothing maudlin there was none of this oh you're such an inspiration because you're wheeling down the street which drives people in wheelchairs insane when people say things like that to them but I can remember I was talking to a couple of them and and uh, one of them said, well, I, I had arms until I was you know, 11 and then I lost my arms. And I said, good God, how did that happen? And he told me the story and it was actually a darkly funny story right. as I realized many Paralympians are, are want to do. But he said to me afterwards, no one's ever asked me in an interview, how did that happen? <laughs> and he was so happy because he had the story ready to go. Yeah. And it was certainly a cautionary tale as well for anyone who was going to get up to trouble. And I always kind of had that in, uh, that was always kind of my guiding principle. You know, don't worry about what you're going to say, but if as long as you're not talking down to people or trying to get people to feel a certain way about them, then it'll be okay. And that also was the genius of talking to Americans, of course, which I love the story of how that came about. I think most people probably thought that it was conceived in a writer's room and the fact that it kind of came about so fortuitously on the fly, I think would blow people's minds. And it's such a great story in the book. But what I found interesting was that you were able to do that thing without, even though we are laughing at them a bit, it was never mean-spirited when so often those kind of things are like I never felt like we were laughing I mean again it would be fair if we were laughing at them for being stupid but I don't feel like we were (laughs) it it was a fine line and I felt at the time it was a different time there was no YouTube right so there was this sense of it's okay Uh, they'll never see this they'll never know And, and it'll be our little secret and don't tell anyone about it and it'll be okay. And I never, ever acted in any way where people 
cottoned on to what was happening. Right. And I was trading. This was the hard part to kind of justify in my head. I was certainly trading on their generosity to talk to a Canadian news team. Because <laughs> so many times I would say, excuse me, and I'd be there with my suit on and my mic flag and the camera, the big professional looking camera producer looked like a news team completely. I'd say, excuse me. And the hand would come up. No, thank you. No, no. And I'd say, do you have a moment for Canadian television? And they'd go, <laughs> really? Ah, sure. Why not? So it was purely, and they always wanted us to do so well. That's what also killed me. Like when I would tell them that we were considering legalizing insulin, they were just, thought that was great news so we really idea. should or we we're opening our first university oh my goodness congratulations and i'd say well of course it's only agricultural related so far they're like yes but you'll get there soon you'll produce teachers and everything I was like, really and it was always so and sometimes i felt bad i i talk about in the book when talking to americans happened and it was a completely unexpected out of the park hit and those mm. things don't happen that often. It's one thing to be on a hit show. That's great. But every now and then on hit shows, hit comedy shows, this happens with Saturday Night Live or it happens with SCTV or whatever. Someone just does something that they don't really expect will yeah. catch fire. And suddenly it becomes a thing that cannot fail. Nice. Classic example is Bob and Doug McKenzie on SCTV. Right. And they just improv a little bit making fun of Canadian content rules. And they just decided to do the goofiest Canadian thing they ever could. It was probably the, the thing that had the least amount of work or attention than anything that week. And it was suddenly, Bob and Doug McKenzie were everywhere they could not fail. And everyone demanded every episode, my God, there's gotta be Bob and Doug McKenzie. That's what talking to Americans was like. And I knew it instantly because everyone was talking about it. And I happened to be on the phone with my father and I talked to my parents all the time, but I would rarely talk about the show with my father at all. And he said, I saw that talking to Americans thing. I said, oh dad, you wouldn't believe everyone's talking about it. It's insane how popular it is. He goes, I know, Jerry called and said he loved it and wanted to know if you're doing it again. And the neighbors came over and they said, are you gonna do it again? I said, yeah, it's, it's wild. And then he said, promise me, you'll never do that ever again. Because <laughs> he just thought it was terrible. And he's a much more decent man than me. And he's the kind of guy who would walk away. Oh, yeah, I'll just walk away from the, the biggest thing I've ever done, Dad. I'll just do that because some folks on the street in Virginia don't realize I'm playing a prank on them. Yeah, I'll just walk away from that. Uh, but he would. And then he never brought it up again. Yeah. <laughs> so how did he feel about the, the fact that it became so huge? I don't know. I don't know. It was one of those father-son things. Yeah. It's the same as when he said, if you come back in this house with an earring, my friend, you can turn around and keep walking. <laughs> and then I came in with the skull hanging from my earlobe. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> What's for dinner? Okay. It's amazing. Um, in the last couple of weeks, what has been the kind of surprising reactions that you've seen to the book since it came out? I'm really, really pleased that people find it funny. And mm -hmm. I think that I made a conscientious decision to do that. I've, I, I've had some good times in my life, and that's what I decided to focus on. And I don't know, I think that might have been pandemic related. Mm -hmm. I had a hard time starting this. I'm so happy that I had a project. Right. Because like everyone else in show business, everything just got pulled away and there was nothing. So I had this and that was great. But especially in the early days of the pandemic, everything was felt so unsettled. It just right. seemed hard to get started at anything. Yeah. And so what I started doing was calling up old buddies and uh, old friends or whatever. Hey, what are you doing? And they were like me and they're like, nothing. I'm in my house and I haven't been out in five weeks. I'm like, yeah, me too. And then you remember when we did that thing? And of course we just start talking, but no one wanted to talk about anything other than kind of good memories and positive times. And a lot of the stories came out of that. So mm. I'm just glad that people find the stories funny mm. and remotely interesting because it's always dodgy when you're writing about your childhood and stuff. And uh, that's that's it. I'm mostly gratified about that because I think people need a bit of escape right now. So that's good.
Absolutely. And performers need a guide. And, and if, we can't have, <laughs> if we can't have our own Gerald, we, we, can, we have this to take us on our way. Um, I do think I make it clear in the book that if you're considering going into the performing arts, you probably shouldn't. <laughs> yes, yes. If there's anything else you can do, <laughs> yeah. do that. It's very true. If you want do to. Do it on the side. <laughs> don't you're open mic wrong. night for the rest of your life. Just do that. Don't, don't make it your life's work. So true. Um, and then one of the other things that I learned reading the book was I had not heard of uh, your sitcom before, which uh, I have no, now having watched the first two seasons, I can't understand uh, why I hadn't made in Canada. Um, what yeah. absolutely um, so prophetic in so many ways um, it could not be more relevant now as I'm sure it was then and if probably every year in between. But um, this is an example of a show that I feel like in any other country there would be criterion collection box sets of this show it would be being repeated all the time and again i mean i've yeah. only been here eight years but why has this show not been well it was it was a show that was about the byzantine world of inside of an office that was a tv film production office but it wasn't about the tv film business it was about right. this group of individuals in this office mm -hmm. so it was very much a situational comedy but we were making fun of the egos that were involved in the business and then in an odd twist the company that we were partnered with was purchased by the company whose ceo was convinced we were constantly making fun of and <laughs> they, they inherited the distribution rights and promptly put it in a vault you know, from Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it was never seen again for a long, long time. And then that company was taken over by another company. These are all publicly traded companies now. And I don't even know who owns the di distribution. I know there's a couple of seasons on Gem, yeah, but there's definitely. six seasons. There's 65 right. episodes of the show and great Canadian guest stars. Mm -hmm. And I'm really proud of that show. That was that was so much fun, so much work. I never worked as hard on anything. Like that type of comedy show is so hard yeah. compared to the Mercer Report. That was a breeze compared to that. Mm -hmm. The script, because you're just constantly working these scripts. So I don't know. I think eventually the times we're in now, everything is coming back to the surface. So somewhere someone is going to say, maybe we should throw that up on a streaming service and see what happens. And I, I like to think that it does hold up. I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. Yeah. The only thing that makes me cringe a little bit looking back at it is... Um, I feel like it doesn't, uh, because of the times, it doesn't necessarily reflect the the you know the diverse angle right. that uh, that TV is now embracing. And I think uh, there's far too many people who look like me and sound like me, and mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that's my only regret looking back at it. I just think, wow, that's a that's a really white show there. Yeah, everyone's yeah. white. <laughs> but uh, and I'm not making excuses, but we live in a time where if you were making friends today, for example, they wouldn't all be glossy white people. Right. And uh, so that's a bit glaring to me when I look at it. But other than that, I'm very proud of the show. Yeah. And we all feel those re regrets. And I guess the, the sign of progress is the fact that we all feel uh, the shame about stuff that we did before uh, for that reason. But again, it doesn't change the fact that it, it's an incredible piece of work, which, as you say, I mean, it, it, it has stayed so relevant now. And I love the fact that when I, I ask kind of why was it not more, I love the fact that you give me the real answer that quite literally it was a constructed effort by someone to bury it. Some, oh, yeah, people, would, some totally. people would try and sugarcoat Some people would not want to tell that, that side of the story. But I love, again, that's the thing with the books. Everything's so honest. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, those people, those, those people aren't really active anymore. So it's not like I'm afraid of them anymore. <laughs> At the time, it was like, ooh, the most powerful man in Canadian show business is convinced that we're mocking him every week. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, and then obviously, I mean, you've been doing lots of interviews talking about the book. I have to ask, is there anything more annoying at the end of an interview when you have uh, talked about all the things you've done, you've pulled off this colossal project, delivered it to the world, and then people say, what's next? How do you resist saying, I've just written a f book, leave me alone? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true sometimes people don't realise. One of the odd things about this book is I do let people peek behind the curtain, and I always philosophically was opposed to that because you never wanted to let people know how hard it is to put a TV show together. 
we never wanted to advertise the fact that there was a lot of writers on the Mercer Report just because we wanted everyone to think, oh, Rick just goes to a Ganong factory and it just all happens. He makes it up. (laughs) And then, you know, 20 minutes later, he's got his bit. You don't want people to see what it takes. And certainly people have said, what have you been doing during the pandemic? And I said, oh, I wrote a book. And they're like, yeah, so you're not doing much. (laughs) (laughs) No, but that's okay. That's okay. And I don't know what's next. I don't really know what's next. But uh, my problem is, I've been very fortunate that I've always had a job, even if it's a job of my own creation or our own creation. But that job uh, meant there were people relying on me to get things done. And there were deadlines. And I've always functioned well, as much as I might resent it. I've always functioned well in that situation. Right now, for the first time since this book has come out, uh, I don't have that. There's no real deadline. I should work on some more stand-up, but there's no real deadline. There's I should write another book, but there's no real deadline. I should should create another show, but no, there's nothing. So, like, there's nothing. I don't know. This is a new feeling for me, and I don't know what's going to be next. Beautiful. Well, embrace it. And uh, and as you mentioned, I mean, one of the most beautiful things uh, I found running through the book is the acknowledgements that you were, were now able to give to all of the crew that you worked with. I think for a lot of people, it would have been a surprise to learn that, you know, quite literally that, you know, in many cases, it was the same camera team that you had from, from the beginning right the way through. Oh, yeah. I've only had two. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, it's... I've only it had be- one editor. I've only had one editor. I mean, certainly there's people who have edited other things, but mm. primarily... Al McLean, this guy, Al McLean, and he was there from day one at 22 minutes. And then he came, he did Talking to Americans, and he came with us to Toronto to do uh, the Mercer Report. And then, you know, he swore to us he would remain a bachelor his entire life. And instead, he suddenly got married and had children. And we figured out a way so he could edit the show in Halifax. We were the first people to do that. Because we weren't going to do it without Al. And director studio director same thing mm. same guy who did every 22 minutes did every mercer report genius it's, it's uh it, yeah so i haven't actually worked with that many people it's, it's incredible. the same tight-knit group yeah and, yeah and what a shorthand you must have and, and also i mean it makes such a difference knowing when you're delivering to camera the a that the cameraman has got it and you know he's got it because he always gets it and and knowing exactly oh, yeah. who's going to be editing it makes a difference and uh, the other thing that you point out is the importance of, and it's something which so many crews and, and touring operations don't realize, and it's the importance of a well-fed crew. Um, oh, so yeah. I, and I love the fact that, that that was what you sought out was the was the best place to eat. Which oh, yeah. You have to end the night like that. So sure. I guess my, what I would love to kind of end on is where would you say is, is the best place in Canada to get that hearty post-shoot, post-show meal? Well, I'm, of course, going to say St. John's, Newfoundland. Beautiful. (laughs) Which is my hometown. (laughs) Because that's the town where I had friends in the restaurant business. (laughs) And they would beat me with an inch of their life if they didn't say, go to Leo's for fish and chips or Merchant's Tavern for whatever fish they have. I love it. Or Mallard Cottage. There you go. There's three right there. There's three. Perfect. Wonderful. Mallard Cottage. And what was the first one? Leo's Fish and Chips. Leo's Fish and Chips. That's the spot beautiful well i will go to all three of those places again very soon and uh i can't thank you enough for your time rick it's been a huge honor to to connect with you like this thank you cheers thank you for listening to mullinger meets canadians if you like greatness creativity being inspired laughing or just love canada as much as i do then this is the podcast for you so please do subscribe and review the show now be sure to follow rick mercer on twitter at rick mercer on Instagram at It's Rick Mercer and purchase the now number one best-selling book, Talking to Canadians, published by Penguin Random House Canada. Further details can be found on the edit website mountainmenit.com and I will see you next time. Podstarter. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.